Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Are you a fan of the Dana Carvey show? It was a sketch comedy show hosted by Dana Carvey. It ran for one season in 1996 on ABC. Half a season, really. Right after Home Improvement. There's only eight episodes. Part of the reason it didn't last very long was because for a show airing on a Disney-owned network in primetime, it was very, very weird. Weirder than pretty much anything else on network TV and definitely 100% too weird to follow Home Improvement. And for that reason, it's become kind of a cult legend in the comedy world. There was even a documentary about it recently on Hulu. Robert Smigel was the showrunner. Here's what he thinks about it. I actually heard someone, Josh Greenbaum, the director, say, you know, those guys stuck to their guns. And if they hadn't, there's no way there would have been a documentary about it 20 years later. Nobody would be talking about it that way. And I'm like, yeah, that's the goal of every showrunner. To make a show that pisses the network off so much that there's a documentary on Hulu. That's that's the that's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. <laughs> the screening at the Bell House in Brooklyn. It's Bullseye. This week, Robert Smigel talks with me about the Dana Carvey show and so much more. Things people actually watched. His time on Saturday Night Live, his new movie on Netflix, and probably his best-known creation, Triumph the Insult Comic Dog, which his kids love now. Yeah, it's like countdown to reality. At some point, everything's going to change, and they're going to be, oh, my dad does that. (laughs) But right now, it's just a joy. They can't believe I get to say I poop on you. Then Gillian Jacobs. You've seen her on Community, on Girls, on Love. Finally, after all that time working, she's taking some time off for a little self-care. I'm working on I'm going to therapy a lot these days. Good for you. Thank you. Going to a lot of therapy and really working on that. I don't know that I'm great at it, but I'm trying. Luckily, I'm able to distract myself right now by doing press for these two movies, (laughs) so I haven't had to actually think about it too hard. Then, one of the most powerful movies about the act of making art, Mr. Turner. It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I can't really think of a better way to say it, but there is a very specific tone to the work of Robert Smigel. When he was a writer on Saturday Night Live, he wrote these almost childlike sketches where the punchline is sometimes just the premise of the show. I mean, look at his animated stuff on TV Funhouse or... uh, the superfans, the guys who say to bears. We are coming to you live from Dicka's here on Thanksgiving Day, a day for giving thanks for or taking punishment from a team that is known as the Bears. The Bears. He went on to become the head writer for Late Night with Conan O'Brien, creating some of the funniest sketches on the show, including one of the funniest, simplest, and if I am frank with you, dumbest Recurring late-night sketches ever, Triumph the Insult Comic Dog. Westminster, the pomp, the pageantry, I tell you, Conan, there are many dog shows out there, but there's only one Westminster for me to poop on! Now Robert Smigel is a writer and director. Together with Adam Sandler, he made a new movie called The Week Of. It's a wedding movie. Sandler plays Kenny, the father of the bride. He's a working-class guy from Long Island. He can't really afford the wedding that he wishes he could give his daughter. Chris Rock is his co-star. He plays Kirby, a heart surgeon from L.A. and the father of the groom. Kirby has the money to help out with everything, but Sandler's character has a hard time accepting it. And that's the central conflict. It's a movie that talks about tradition and class and coming of age and loss and Since it's an Adam Sandler flick, there are a few scenes where Adam Sandler does a funny baby voice. Here's a little bit from the week of. In this scene, Sandler has just picked up Chris Rock's character from a hotel in Manhattan, and they are heading to Long Island for what is turning out to be a very long, hot car ride. How are we doing with the AC? You good still? You don't need it, right? Uh, 
I'm just talking gas-wise. It's better off. I'm just saying, AC would be great. You say it, and we, we'll turn it on. I said it. That's right. 100%. I'll just hit the switch, and it's blasting. It's really hot in here. It's getting there, right? All right, go to sleep. It's hard to sleep because of all the noise yeah. from all right. outside. How's this? Let me turn it on for you. Better? Yeah. Okay, let's turn it on. <laughs> Robert Smigel, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you. Um, very nice to be here. I'm a fan of the show. I like that you chose that clip because it's got, uh, it's got. Uh, I think that's Morning Edition in the background. Anytime I hear NPR in a movie, I'm uh, I'm going to be frank. I'm I'm disappointed that it's not me. Anytime. Well, you know, Adam Adam's always trying to slip NPR into his movies to you know because that's his core right. audience. Sure. <laughs> Robert, the the tone of this movie is pretty different from the other uh, Happy Madison Adam Sandler films. It is. I think it's different than most studio comedies i would say rather than you know it's it's very um naturalistic and uh you know it's shot uh, there's a lot of handheld and it it feels verite as it were to use an npr word sandler does uh, very few silly voices there's like two or three instances of a silly voice <laughs> yes he does does his chris rock impression that he's always done uh i had to work that into the movie um, he does a very abstract Chris Rock impression <laughs> that sounds more like, uh, you know, the lead singer of the stylistics or something. Ah, <laughs> uh, Sandler, what are we going to do? <laughs> um, what do you think are Sandler's best qualities as a performer, as a movie star? Well, Adam was always one of these guys who, like, from the first day at Saturday Night Live, he... He's very genuine and very uh, unpretentious and unguarded. And he had a lot of balls when he was hired as a writer-performer. He would he used to literally say to people, I'm going to be huge. I'm going <laughs> to smite I'm going to be like Eddie Murphy. I'm going to be huge. I don't know. I, I, I can feel it. And it was really uh, very refreshing because a lot of people at that show uh, – play the passive-aggressive game. Like, what? My sketch? Come on. No, please. My sketch is the worst. And you kind of get rewarded sometimes for playing that game. And I was always sort of a clumsy version of Adam where I just had no poker face and I I couldn't help myself when I thought, you know, my sketch deserved to be in. And, but Adam was just like a friendly, un, completely what you see is what you get kind of personality who um and that's sort of been his strength all these years like when he when he's on screen he's really just being himself he never had to depend on an arch kind of personality i think he's i think his performance in this movie is the best part of the movie um you know there were days when he had to do something very subtle but but very difficult at the same time, and I was just, uh, I was just amazed at how at how good he was, how effortless it was. It's very different to watch him not be a romantic lead, and I think also, yeah, I think also to be such a dad. I mean, that's this is really a dad movie. It is a dad movie, and that was one of the ways we bonded when we were younger at SNL. Was our families were very close knit. We had that in common. We both. Um, looked up to our dads more than anyone just worshiped them and uh you know they weren't they were different his dad was gruffer i think than my dad but they had a lot of similarities and and there's parts of both dads in this movie and some other some other dads i know but uh yeah uh adam's character is uh yeah it's the movie in a way is, is a, a bit of a love letter to to a certain kind of fatherhood. You're a father. How is it different from what you imagined or what you expected? You know, I emulated my own dad in many ways. Like, I'm going to be a dad just like my guy, mine. I just wanted to just remind them every day how loved they are and uh, 
and encourage them. I mean, my dad was insane, like in terms of bragging about me when I was like five years old, I could draw Charlie Brown really well. And like he was a dentist. So every patient was forced to look at my comic strips when I was five years old. And I would meet these people later on in life. And it's like they had a thousand mile stare on them, you know, that like they'd been, you know, war veterans and just, yes, I've talked to your father. I know everything. I know your whole life. Um, but I did want to be, I did want to make my kids feel like they could do anything. My first son, um, you know, was the greatest thing on earth when he was born. And, uh, my son ended up being, you know, on the extreme side of, uh, the spectrum and he's wonderful. And, and I've learned so much by, uh, by, um, having him in my life. It's been, it's been an incredible gift. I mean, I would still trade everything for him to be able to communicate and, um, you know, be able to, you know, enjoy everything that the rest of us can. But, but, you know, it has been a gift. And then I have, you know, it wasn't for 10 years that we were able to have the focus to have more children. And we had twin boys and, you know, it's, um, it's, it it was amazing. And they, and I think it's even easier in a way because they entertain each other too. I mean, it's been, yeah, a relative breeze and, and, uh, it's too much fun. And I just, I want to hold on to every second of it. So, you know, because at some point they're going to, they're going to think I'm an idiot. It's coming. It's coming very soon. <laughs> um, I mean, I think you might, well, on the one hand, you are probably the kind of dad who, uh, whose children might be very proud of him in his, you know, you have a very exciting career for adolescence, but it's yes, also it's very true. Probably literally the most single, most embarrassing like a guy who does, you know, what crouches I mean? behind who crouches behind a desk and holds a puppet in his arm. It's not embarrassing to a ten-year-old. That's the fun part. That's yeah. what I'm saying. They're going to think I'm triumph, an idiot when you're doing the triumph voice for the family dog for the fourteen-year-old. It's like, oh boy. Yeah, exactly. Well, fortunately, I I I don't do that at home. But but they would be happy if I did, you know. I let them put the puppet on their hands and do the voice and do whatever they want with it. But they, uh, yeah, it's like countdown to reality. At some point, everything's going to change and they're going to be, oh, my dad does that. <laughs> but right now, it's just a joy. They can't believe I get to say I poop on you. <laughs> no. All these things. And, I, I, and I, there's tons of stuff that I will not show them that I've done. Because they're, it's just inappropriate, and um, you know, uh, so you know, I, I have shown them some other Saturday Night Live stuff, but it's mostly like Chris Farley and things I think they'll enjoy, In- including um, Robert. You've done inappropriate things for them for network television during prime time. Yes, I have. <laughs> yes, I have. I've. I've I've made I've made mis- mistakes have been made. <laughs> I didn't know. I I've always been interested in doing what hadn't been done. That's that's been my uh uh you know, muse and my problem at the same time. I have so many failures. The Dana Carvey show is like the tip of the iceberg. That's what's so sad and amusing at the same time. Well, I won't. I won't have you describing the Dana Carvey show as a failure because it was an extraordinary success in m- most of the ways that matter. Um, Thank you. Maybe Thank not you. for your continued employment, but that's the problem. Like <laughs> you know, I actually heard someone, Josh Greenbaum, the director, say, "You know, those guys stuck to their guns, and if they hadn't, there's no way there would have been a documentary about it twenty years later. Nobody would be talking about it that way." <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's the goal of every showrunner, to make a show that pisses the network off so much that there's a documentary on Hulu. That's that's the that's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. <laughs> the screening at the Bell House in Brooklyn. <laughs> What's amazing about the documentary about the show um, was. That, you know how how quickly you forget 
it was 20 years ago and the internet as we know it oh yeah basically didn't exist pretty close no, there to was didn't just exist all, if you wanted feedback on your show you would have to go to these usenet groups like yeah. alt fan conan o'brien yeah. was one of the first ones and that's how we that's how we knew that we had fans but there were these tiny groups of like 20 people who would talk about the show oh i was definitely posting in alt.fan.newsradio at the time there you go yeah and yeah. and so i think to some extent you just didn't know either the impact that the show was having positively or negatively in the way that you would now like now the feedback oh, would be immediate no it was pretty immediate i have to tell you because <laughs> because they they had a meter that they had it was like new technology where they were able to track nielsen ratings what they you know they didn't do it for every show but they would like spend the money for like pilots or first early episodes of shows what they called the minute by minutes and so we knew that we had inherited an enormous audience from home improvement and that within the first five minutes that audience had dropped by like 40 <laughs> percent people were just you know diving out of their windows <laughs> trying to get away from their television sets I want to talk about your time on Saturday Night Live, um, sure. which was kind of your first big break was as as a writer on oh, Saturday Night without Live. Without a doubt. Yeah. You had been working uh, doing uh, sketch and improv in Chicago, mm -hmm. and you got hired as a writer on SNL. And your first year as a writer on SNL was maybe Saturday Night Live's most ill-fated year. Or second after after the one when Lorne Michaels left, maybe. Yes, I would I, I would call it a, a second to the Gene Dumanian year. Yeah, <laughs> um, it, it's the year when big movie stars like Robert Downey Jr. and Anthony Michael Hall and Randy Quaid, um, Joan Cusack, two time Cusack. Oscar nominee after that. Yeah, lo lots of brilliant <laughs> comic actors, without question, uh, were in the cast of the program. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I want to play a sketch that you wrote. And uh, from what I understand, oh. this was the first sketch that you got on the air. It stars Madonna, and it's Madonna hosting a kind of Spanish language uh, yes. musical talk show uh, as as Marika. You're in a sketch. You're one of the backup singers. Damon Wayans is there. John Lovitz is there. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we are about to hear is is her segueing from her opening number, which was a borderline nonsensical Latin pop version of Take On Me by AHA. Yes, uh, it was a mashup of Take On Me and La Bamba. Yeah. Before mashups existed, my friend. We're heading into, we're going from Take On Me into La Bamba here. I think it, uh, you know, for good or ill, reflects the mm. Robert Smigel aesthetic. I guess it does, in a way, because it's an affectionate parody of something kind of hokey. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I just looked at her and thought she would be a really funny uh, Spanish TV host. And that hadn't really been parodied on the show yet. Um, you know, and then the sketch is just very low concept. I wrote it with... The Kids in the Hall guys, McCullough and McKinney. Um, and uh, then I didn't get a sketch on for four weeks. <laughs> and I was in danger of being fired, actually. You ended up writing the last sketch of the year, too, right? I did. It was a... Um, well, back then, uh, there was this awful trend uh, starting in television, uh, cliffhangers, that, uh, you know, on shows like Dynasty and Dallas where there'd be a fire or someone would be murdered and, you know, they'd make you wait over the course of the summer to find out what happened. So I uh, I just went right at the show's problems because I was very much, other people didn't like doing this, but, you know, at that time Letterman was my TV hero and he was all about that kind of meta or, you know, self, 
self-referential comedy. So for me, it just came very naturally. Well, let's do a show that's a cliffhanger. Let's end the season on a cliffhanger and have a fire and Lauren has to decide who to save and, you know, and who's going to survive the fire because we kind of knew that that it was going to be a rough off season. Um, so, yeah, that job, that that sketch um, caused some grief uh, when I wrote it, but it might have helped save my job over the summer, actually. I mean, it's funny that you say that that sketch at the end of the season made you laugh and saved your job. It's also a pretty brutal concept for a show yeah. in dire straits. Yeah, it was. But it got the show got a lot of positive press for it was it, it helped the show. And um because, you know, it was uh, people people appreciated that we were able to make fun of our our situation uh in such a in such a painfully honest way (laughs) even more with robert smigel coming up here's a fact about him he already knows what he wants his tombstone to say find out after a quick break it's bullseye for maximumfun.org and npr support for this npr podcast and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. are you hiring every business needs great people and a better way to find them Something better than posting your job online and waiting for the right people to see it. ZipRecruiter can help. Their technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash bullseye. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, fellow music nerds, I'm Robin Hilton with All Songs Considered, one of the hosts of NPR's Music Discovery Podcast. Each week, we geek out over our favorite new songs and artists and play loads of music for you to fall in love with. Hear All Songs Considered in the NPR One app or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Robert Smigel. He's a veteran writer from Saturday Night Live, Conan, The Dana Carvey Show, and of course, he is the voice and creator of Triumph the Insult Comic Dog. He just wrote and directed a new movie. It's called The Week Of. It's out now on Netflix. I want to talk about Triumph the Insult Comic Dog, uh, the beloved character that will follow you to your grave. Yes. I always tell people that my tomb, tombstone will read, this is, a, this is a lovely tombstone for me to poop on. <laughs> I'm um, stuck with it. I was trying to think of the first time that I remember seeing Triumph the Insult Comic Dog because I Mm. I think that a a lot – it has such a refined form now, but it took quite a long time to get there. To evolve, yeah. And the voice was even different. I've, like, watched the early – the first appearance and he talked much more like this. He was more slow and deliberate. That was the voice that I used for dogs since I was – 10 years old. That's just a voice I had in my head for for dogs. My family was, you know, uh, my mom's side was, was all first-generation Russian immigrants. And for some reason, I associated that voice. When I imagined dogs talking, that was the voice in my head. Um, and, you know, the awful, the only awful explanation I can surmise is, because it wasn't, it didn't work for cats, it didn't work for gerbils, it just worked for dogs. And I the only explanation I've ever come up with is that dogs just have that look of hope in their eyes, much like a Russian immigrant who's just landed in Ellis Island. They just look at all of this America. I can't, I can't explain why I made the association. That's the closest I can come. This is the first appearance of Triumph. Oh, um, good. You'll see how different it sounds. Yeah, it's a it's a Conan sketch about the very talented dogs at the Westminster Kennel Club yeah. Dog Show. <laughs> and so there are dogs playing banjos, dogs doing magic tricks, dogs doing plate spinning. You know, the yes. joke the joke being the, you know, obviously the the uh, the dog show being turned into a talent show, right? Yes, and we had done this bit for like 4 years. And, at this point, <laughs> and, and this is this is triumph uh, popping onto the screen. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you very much. It's great to be here, Conan O'Brien. Thank you for having me, Conan. 
the Conan O'Brien show. It's a great show for me to poop on. <laughs> That's right. All right. Who do we have here, Conan? Who you got for guests? Uh, Siskel and Ebert. That's great. Uh, doesn't everyone love Siskel and Ebert? They're terrific. Oh, yes. You know, some people have their favorite, Siskel, Ebert. I think they're both great. For me to poop on. <laughs> All right. No, seriously, Ebert, you're terrific, Ebert. You look great. You lost a lot of weight. You know that? I tell you what. You know what? I still wouldn't hump your leg. That's right. Okay, okay. No, you're terrific, Ebert. I'd hump it, but uh, I'd hump your leg, but I would uh, pretend it was <laughs> Jeffrey Lyons' leg. You know what I'm saying? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that one. I mean, you seem like a guy who is, to some extent, concerned about being a nice guy. Oh, yeah, there's nothing that I would do uh, that I, you know, as myself, that Triumph does, pretty much. So it is fun to have that outlet because, you know, I I think I am a nice guy, but I'm, I'm also a cynical <laughs> at the same time. I always have been. Um, and uh, Triumph has been a, a fun way to express it. And, and there's something about it that I, I've always enjoyed. I mean, I could have never been a real insult comic. Uh, I've always liked that there's there's still a layer of irony on some level that exists with a, a puppet insulting a person as opposed to as opposed to a real person because you you know the the structure of his jokes a lot of times is deliberately hacky, even though we try to write really really clever jokes. And I think. Uh, you know, I've worked with amazing writers, and I'm, I'm proud of the jokes he does. But, but I think I don't think it hurts as much when, you know, a low status, uh, tiny little dog uh, with an accent is is, is crapping on you uh, as much as a real human being, <laughs> because you know that it's a game on some level. You're more aware that he's just doing his job. Well, Robert Smigel, I'm so grateful for, to okay. you for taking all this time to talk to me. Uh, it's you a, got it. It's a real yeah. honor. Oh, please. Your work oh, has, your, Robert, your work has genuinely has genuinely <laughs> touched my life, and it it means a lot to me. So, thank you for thank you for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Jesse. Robert Smigel, the week of is available to stream right now on Netflix, and it is really lovely just not a word that I would necessarily use to describe other Adam Sandler movies. But it is. It's really lovely. Uh, you can also find some of Smigel's other work, like the Dana Carvey show and the absolutely hilarious Triumph Election special on Hulu. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're a fan of Gillian Jacobs, it's probably because of her TV work. For six years, she starred on the smash hit NBC sitcom Community. She played Britta. She also played Mimi Rose on HBO's Girls. And on Netflix's Love, which just wrapped up its third and final season, she starred as Mickey. But now, for basically the first time in her career, she's becoming more of a film actor. You can see her in Life of the Party, the new Melissa McCarthy movie. And later this month on Netflix, she'll star in Ibiza. In Ibiza, Gillian plays Harper a quiet New Yorker in her early 30s who works at a PR company. Her life changes when she gets sent on an important work trip to Barcelona, Spain. And against her better judgment, Harper brings along her two party animal friends, Nikki, played by Vanessa Bayer, and Leah, played by Phoebe Robinson. As you might have guessed, things don't go as planned. The three party all night in Ibiza, hundreds of miles away from where she's supposed to be. And in this scene we're about to hear, Gillian's character calls her boss played by Michaela Watkins, to check in. Harper? Hi there, Sarah. How are you? It has been over 24 hours since you've checked in. Where the f*** are you? I'm actually leaving a meeting right now. I've been looking for new clients and... lying to me. See, you do me a favor. You take those out of your ear and stick them back in your mouth so you can listen to what I'm saying because I got some I got to throw at your face, right? Now, this little dinner meeting tomorrow, it is a breakfast meeting, okay? 11 a.m. Tomorrow morning. Yeah, so take a tub of concealer and shove it under your eyes and take a package of and shove it up your because you need to go there looking and smelling fresh. You got it? 
You know, I think probably a dinner meeting is better. I'm really trying to set the scene with this pitch, and I, I, I've, 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 I, it's, it, it hinges on an evening atmosphere. It, it's got to be at night. Listen, little f- hipster Barbie, you need to close this deal. Gillian <laughs> <laughs> Jacobs, welcome back to Bullseye. It's nice to see you. Thank you so much for having me again. I kind of get the impression that if, that your character in. Oh, geez. Ibiza? Yeah. Ibiza? Ibiza. Well, we say Ibiza because we're Americans. Americans, but it's Ibiza. Okay. Please don't email me, America. We we know yeah. it should be Ibiza. Okay. Um, your character in this film... <laughs> Good. <laughs> uh, ...goes through an emotional journey that is one that I imagine you relating to. And I wonder if my imagination is off base there. Not at all. Because, because like, your character in this movie is a real square do-gooder people pleaser. Correct. And I know that that maybe is something like what you are like in real life. I'm finally playing a character that's close to me. <laughs> yes. That's very much me. How has that affected your life? Um, well, probably like the character of Harper in the movie, I've missed out on a lot of like fun, wild nights. I've spent them at home <laughs> being the first one to leave every party and event. I don't know. I, I've probably missed out on a lot of fun, but I've also... I don't know, maybe, you know, tried to work really hard and be dedicated to my job. And so maybe that's benefited me. But I, I definitely think that I, I missed out on like the wild college and 20s that a lot of people have. I don't have those memories. What kind of memories do you have? Are they all sitting at home? And They're mostly sitting at home. Um Yes, being like, oh, I should really go now because I have to wake up early tomorrow and being the only one to leave. So, yes, like being the designated driver and always being concerned about how many hours of sleep I'm going to get. To what extent do you think that behavior is about being responsible? And to what extent do you think that behavior for you is about being, you know, scared of what might happen? As the the listeners can't see, but I have twisted myself into a pretzel. That's literally um, <laughs> true. You have double crossed your legs. Um, I think it's both. With a, the the uh, uh, the latter being a, probably a large portion of it. Yes, I I'm very concerned about potential bad consequences if I ever allow myself to have fun. I think I've convinced myself that probably my life would be over <laughs> if I ever had fun. But I know it about myself. That's progress. I mean, I I know for me, like I now am married and have three children. And that really determines the course of my life almost completely. Mm -hmm. And so I can kind of blame my behavior in that way. Uh, on that, like I can just be like, oh, I got, I, I can't go do something. Mm-hmm. I have three children to take care of. Yes, you know, or whatever. But then I realized I did not have children until I was thirty-one. Mm-hmm. So that leaves fifteen post-adolescent years in which I also didn't do anything. Yes, <laughs> and like <laughs> that, that, I had no excuse then mm-hmm. for. Being such a boring, hardworking person. <laughs> well, you and I are both uh, very passionate about what we do for a living. Uh-huh. And we're in professions that really reward people working very hard for long hours. And so I think you get affirmed in that way. But, yes, at a certain point, I have to stop and think about, like, but what about my life? I think ultimately for for a lot of folks, I don't know if this is true for you, but I think for a lot of folks – you're really focused on making sure that you're steering the ship of your own life. Mm-hmm. And that leads you not to trust that if you take your hands off the wheel. Yeah. And also that that feeling that um, if I ever stopped working, I would never work again. So really, actually, right now is the first break I've taken in a long time. Yeah, I did a play and it closed and I'm not working right now. And it's really scary for me. But I also hit a point where I was like, I want to also live my life 
And I don't know what that means for somebody who likes to go home first and doesn't drink and doesn't like to go on vacation. But I think I have to give myself a little bit of space to figure out um, who I am when I'm not working. Because you were on Love, which is just uh, coming to a close. Mm-hmm. And before that, and you went from you went into that directly from being on Community for six years or something like that. Yes. So pretty much your whole adult, adult life since you started working regularly, you have been under contract. Yes. And there are so many more restrictions to being under a television contract than I ever realized. Like you have to ask permission to guest star on another show, to do a voice on an animated show, to do a play. You know, basically anything that I've done that could in any way conflict, I've had to like ask permission. And so I think when when love ended, I realized, oh, this is the first time in nine years where I don't have to ask anyone permission to do whatever I want to do. So, so far that has meant doing nothing. But, you know, it's it's been kind of a nice just change for my own mentality. Are you able to do nothing? I'm working on I'm going to therapy a lot these days. <laughs> Good for you. Thank you. <laughs> going to a lot of therapy and really working on that. I don't know that I'm great at it, but I'm trying. Luckily, I'm able to distract myself right now by doing press for these two <laughs> movies, so I haven't had to actually think about it too hard. <laughs> but if there's like a day on my schedule that doesn't have meetings or, you know, press or any kind of obligation, I get very nervous. And I'm like, is there any meetings? Are there any meetings you could set for me? So I think I need to work on. <laughs> More bullseye still to come. Stay with us. When we come back from a quick break, Gillian talks with me about high school theater and how it was the first place she felt like she could be herself. It's bullseye from maximumfun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from REI. Human beings are becoming the world's first indoor species, now that the average American spends 95% of their life indoors. Take the quiz at REI.com and see how small changes can lead to a better life outdoors. REI Co-op has everything you need to get outside more often, from gear to trips. REI has been sharing their passion for the outdoors since 1938. Visit REI.com or your local REI store. I'm Ophira Eisenberg. Join me on NPR's Ask Me Another as we challenge contestants and celebrities to nerdy word games, music parodies, and ponderful trivia. Find us every week on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Gillian Jacobs starred on the TV shows Community, Girls, and Love. Her latest project is the upcoming Netflix movie Ibiza, which debuts later this month. Let's play a clip from Community, which okay. was the uh, uh, which was the sitcom uh, that my guest Gillian Jacobs uh, was on. She played Britta, and basically the show was set up as a study group at a community college with six very uh, different, unlikely friends. Um, a kind of classic sitcom setup, but in a way, it also was a show that was about the form and about the forms of the various forms of kind of film and television. And so in this clip, the study group at Greendale Community College is playing Dungeons and Dragons together. (laughs) And um, we have just found out that that Gillian's character is so earnest and caring, uh, she, she maybe is getting carried away. And this is a local elf tavern, but all races are welcome. It's a crowded and rowdy evening. Beleaguered gnomes hurry to and fro with glasses of mead for the thirsty elves. Beleaguered? Why are they beleaguered? Who cares? I find a waiter and introduce myself. Why is he a pirate? He's a gnome. He only speaks gnome. Anybody here speak gnome? Oh, I do. Lavernica does. This will be painless. Hello, my friend and brother. How can I help you, dear madam? Oh, please, no need for such deference. I'm no better than a gnome. Yes, you are, madam. You are a human warrior, which is five species classes greater than I. That's disgusting. Don't talk like that. I am so sorry, madam. Please don't report me for execution. Oh, no, 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 I didn't mean that. Guys, we've got to do something about these gnomes. Um... Britta, ask the stupid gnome where we can get a pegasus. Did someone say pegasus? A word I understand in every language. (laughs) I think I understand why you are invested in clarifying the ways in which you are different from your character on that show. (laughs) However, that having been said, 
I think that one of her essential characteristics is a kind of like deep earnestness. Uh-huh. And I think that is a positive characteristic. Yes. I think it's one of the character's most admirable characteristics. And I think it's one that you sh- maybe share with her. Yes. I'll let you characterize it. No, but- you're correct. And I think that's why I was cast in the part, because I didn't have any comedy experience. So on the page, probably, I was a strange choice. But you're right. I think we share that. And I think, you know, Dan Harmon and the Russo brothers saw that and... That's why they cast me as Britta. I mean, I don't think that's even that far off from the the quality that you share with uh, Mickey, your character mm. from Love, as well. Like Mickey is on the surface, you know, you're. You, it was like, oh, what if I do? What if I did something completely different from mm-hmm. Britta? Right? Like it's just like, oh, she smokes and drinks and does drugs all the time and is really crazy, um, or wild, I should say, probably. And uh, and Britta, of course, is like a real homework doer. But like the thing that they share is they both are like right there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you can really feel it. Oh, well, you know, in some ways, I guess like uh, Mickey is Britta without uh, network standards and practices. <laughs> <laughs> I can see why people think those characters are cousins or sisters or somewhere related. Yes. Yeah. Um, And I think, you know, for Mickey, on the surface, she seems very different from me. And a lot of her behaviors are very different from mine as a person. But I think that she and I do share some fundamental things. So I realized she is sort of like, if I reach a crossroads in my life, and I chose one path, she chose another. So it's sort of like a, a parallel universe version of me, perhaps. Do you feel like there was a point in your life where you reached a crossroads and made a choice? Well, mine was very young when I decided to never drink. And I was like a child when I decided that. So I put the fork really early, much earlier than I think people normally do. And so getting back to our – I'm very afraid of what happens if I let myself have fun, you know, or what happens if I stop working. You know, I think as a child I had a lot of anxiety and so I decided to make this hard and fast decision and that was going to be the solution to everything. And so, you know, Mickey is a character who didn't make that decision that I made. So I think it's it sort of allowed me to explore what life could have been like had I not been such a, a control freak of a child. Yeah, why, why do you think that you made that decision? Because I had a parent who was an alcoholic, and I had a lot of fear about what would happen if I even had one drink. You know, I was a child who, like, made had a lot of strong opinions about things, was very definite about things. And so I just made a strong, definite decision never to drink, which is like a, you know, a, a fear-based decision. That's like a... That's not coming from, like, an adult reasoning mind. That's coming from a scared child. I mean, I make a lot of scared child decisions Yeah. right now. Yeah, well, my therapist told me that any time that I view something in a very, like, um, hard and fast way that I should examine it because that's coming from, like, child-based fear place rather than adult reasoning place. So, you know, I think it probably applies to a lot of areas of my life beyond just the, like, deciding never to drink. But that's a very obvious example. What was it like for you to play a character on Love who had made such a different choice at a crossroads for you? Like, what was it like for you to... One of the things about Love, right, is that it's the most incremental of shows. It's a show that, um, you know, happens as as close to real time as any show not called 24, right? Yes. So, like, you're just right there in the thing Mm -hmm. for a few years. Yes. Um, What was that like for you? Well... I think that I had a lot of empathy for the character because I could understand sort of what the drivers were behind the behavior. But I, initially, I didn't understand why they cast me because on the surface, I am so different from her. Um, and I was very concerned about all the very superficial things like looking like a smoker, or like, you know, holding a cigarette correctly. Like I never smoked weed, having to like smoke weed on camera, you know, like not wanting to betray the character because I don't know how to do those things or I've never done them in my real life. But beyond those like very superficial things, I feel I found it to be a really positive experience for me as a person. 
and it made me think about myself and, you know, people in my life in a different, more compassionate way, I feel like. When you're an actor, like, do you do things in a scene that you then go talk to your therapist about? Not not in real time, but, yeah, I think it... it well, I mean, I presume your therapist isn't on set. That would be great. <laughs> I should get that in my contract for the next one. You're a movie star now, Gillian. Oh my Let's make God. this happen for you. Wouldn't that be amazing if you could have your you get, therapist you get a, on set? You get a trailer, and the trailer has a chaise lounge in it. Oh, my God. That would, oh, that would make the work day couch. so much easier. Um, I, yeah, it, it. I mean, especially... They wrote this episode with Mickey's father in it, not knowing anything about my father in real life or uh, not realizing how closely they had written that character to my father. Certain differences. But that, for one, was a very um, eerie feeling being at the table read. And as we're reading the episode out loud, I'm reading out loud in front of people for the first time, realizing like they've they've written a version of my dad without realizing it. You know, and my dad has passed away, so he's no longer living. And, you know, so it was kind of like having a weird last interaction with my father in some kind of strange way, even though it's television and it's another actor and I'm wearing a costume and it's not me. But um, yeah, I just remember it really hit me because how close he was to my dad saying like, I love you, dad, on the show and realizing like I can never say that again in real life. That was, yeah, more profound than I thought it would be. What was similar about the character in your real life father? Well, um, my dad had a lot of like business schemes that never really went anywhere, like the character on the show. He was a person, you know, who I think struggled with substances and never really got help for it. And he was never like fully absent from my life, but we never had a really close relationship. And it was kind of like, you know, that awkwardness that you see on the show of them being around each other and having a conversation. It was not like that. Uh, easy closeness that I have with my mother and feeling like someone who would sort of shut down whenever I tried to have a more intimate uh, conversation with them, who just, you know, for a lot of a lot of time in his life wasn't really interested in a lot of introspection. And so that made it very difficult to have more than a very surface relationship with him. There's this thing in – I went to a lot of AA meetings as a kid because my dad was in recovery mm-hmm. and my parents were divorced and couldn't afford babysitters. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I wasn't paying close attention, right? But in retrospect, one of the things that I recognized there is – and I think this is true for a lot of 12-steps, not just AA, right – is that – this idea of a higher power mm-hmm. and surrendering surrendering to a higher power, which you know you could think of as as partic- specifically religious, but I'm not religious. Like the thing that what it's actually about is making you comfortable with not having control. Yes, right. That if something else is in control, a bigger there if there is a bigger force in the universe, if there is a higher power, right. I mean, you have all this. You you might have all this evidence that you don't have pure agency in your life, right? Things not working out, whatever it is, right? Yes. Like uh, pain, you making mistakes, yeah. like th- good things happening that you don't feel like you did something to deserve mm-hmm. it as well, and like that part is so hard. Yes, and also for me. There is relief, though, in that notion, and I'm not a religious person, but I've been trying to be more open to the notion that I don't have it all figured out and I don't have all the answers, you know, and and there's relief in that for me, too, of um, that I don't know everything, and that's perfectly all right. (laughs) Yeah. I know that your personal comedy tastes tend a little bit towards the ridiculous. (laughs) Are you ever jealous of the kind of people who can just open up a fire hose <laughs> when they're doing comedy? Uh, and by that you mean like like a Melissa on SNL or something like yeah. that? Yeah. I weirdly feel like I have that gear inside of myself that's not been given I, – I, I, it's a funny thing of like um, I'm a person racked with anxiety, but I feel so much less fear when I'm performing. 
So I've I have no problem being ridiculous. Yeah, it would be fun to get to do that more. But yeah, I don't feel afraid of that sort of thing as afraid of everything else as I am. Has that always been true? I mean, was that true when you were 14 and you were in Oklahoma? <laughs> I was not in Oklahoma, Jesse. The, the high school did it, but I, I had <laughs> was not cast in it. Um, yeah, I think that that was a place I felt – I always felt kind of free in acting class and on stage. And I think I've grown as a performer, certainly. But there was something about the acting class environment, being at a theater that made me feel safe and taken care of and then free to be silly and – Weird. Yeah, it really was like my my safe place as a kid. I mean, that's an interesting way of putting it. I don't think I had ever thought of it that way. But I think one of the great appeals of being in something, and I've heard being in a movie or television program, I wouldn't know. (laughs) But one of the appeals of that is that like the value that you are taught from the beginning is stuff like you always have to be 10 minutes early because no one can do anything unless everyone is there. Mm -hmm. You always have to support the other people on stage because we all look bad if somebody looks bad. Like those values are things that are really immensely appealing to somebody that isn't getting that elsewhere. Yes. I loved that I got in trouble if I was late or if I didn't hang up my costume or if I did the blocking incorrectly or if I said the line incorrectly I got a note from the stage manager like the my the expectations were very clear for me in those ways when I got to Juilliard it got muddier because then it was about performance and that's less qualitative I feel like the line in the Big Lebowski that my father who is a, a veteran and recovering alcoholic always related to the most was when Walter says, this is not nom, this is bowling, there are rules. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like when there's parts of your life that are out of control, the Mm. parts of your life that have rules are so comforting. Yes. Yes. I, I loved it. I loved it. And also it was like far less judgmental people, you know, so there was the other half of it where they were all nicer to me than the people at my school, my Monday through Friday life. You know, I go my Saturday acting class and they seem to like the things about me that other people made fun of. So it gave me space in my life to to be myself. What did people make fun of? Um, well, you know, I was always one of the youngest people in my class, so I don't think I had really developed social skills. <laughs> so I don't think I had like an easy time making friends because I also didn't spend a lot of time with kids. I was mainly with adults most of the time. I didn't have play dates. I didn't have like, you know, siblings. So I was mainly with adults. And so I think I liked, you know, I found things as a kid that I really liked that I don't think a lot of people at my school shared an interest in. Um, what was I really into? Like, I really loved Cary Grant. <laughs> Well, Gillian, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's it's nice to see you. Thank you for having me. Gillian Jacobs, folks. Ibiza comes out on Netflix Friday, May 25th. It's really fun. Really a good time movie. We like to wrap up every Bullseye episode with a culture recommendation from me. We call it The Outshot. In Mr. Turner, Timothy Spall plays the lead the legendary painter, J.M.W. Turner. And he says a lot of things, but none of the things he says are more expressive than this. And this. And this. In making Mr. Turner, Mike Lee, the director, and Spall faced a great challenge. How do you convey the brilliance of a painter in a narrative medium? It's hard enough to make a biographical film about a musician, but I'd much rather watch somebody play guitar than paint. Do you watch the paint smear around? Point the camera at the wall and wait? It's basically an impossible task. But it's one that these great artists were up to. Oh, my goodness me. Oh, Mr. Turner, I am quite overwhelmed. Do as you wish. Do as you wish. Oh, my, these are breathtaking, are they not? My dear late father would have much appreciated them. For one thing, there's this. Many of Lee's films are shot very plainly. 
they're realistic. They're developed through months of improvisation, and they don't really highlight stylish camera work. It's a way of looking in on everyday lives. Mr. Turner lets us look in on a life here, too. It's a visual life. And the camera reflects Turner's great gift, the manipulation of light. The sky, the streets, the sea all come alive, just like Turner's paintings. They're luminous. But then, in contrast, there's Spall as Turner. He's not luminous at all. He's squat and scowling. Not ugly exactly, but almost painfully unglamorous, the opposite of his work. He's like one of those knotty pine trees that grows on an oceanside cliff, gnarled and tough, barely able to speak more than a sentence or two. Every spoken phrase that comes out of his mouth sounds like it's being pushed out of a birth canal. It's a painful burden. Good day to you, sir. And a very good day to you, Mrs. D. And how do we find you on this fair morning? Exceedingly preoccupied, madam. Was ever thus? You've always been preoccupied. You're too preoccupied for your own good, sir. Nothing comes from nothing, madam. And we have had nothing from you, sir. But when the painting comes, it comes almost magically. Turner's depictions of the sky and sea are towering works of technique, spectacularly beautiful. He loved fires and shipwrecks and other maelstroms. And as the years went on, his sharper, more careful, more representative work became wilder until a contemporary in the Royal Academy was moved to call them blots. At one point in the film, the Queen sees his work and she says, Ugh, a dirty yellow mess. The magic of Mr. Turner, the film, is that it shows us this profoundly pedestrian man living at home with his parents, painting alone in an attic, unable to muster the social graces to sell his work, even when a patron arrives almost pre-sold. We think his face is scrunched up because he's bearing the weight of life, but in fact, it's scrunched up at the effort of transcendence. The plain, grumpy man pushes this paint into piles of roiling turmoil, flames and waves and heavy clouds highlighted by flecks and streams of his signature crystalline light. Lee's camera pushes into and through the paintings, bringing their action and their details to life almost literally. The paintings and the film are textured and physical and almost corporeal. But so is the great artist's ugly life. Turner's mistakes aren't dramatic, like in most biopics. There's no central incident. There's no rock bottom, no smack addiction. Instead, there's a kind of thrum of grotesquerie. He's cruel to his housekeeper, who he uses for sex. You're all decaying. You send the cobalt blue. Put it in a jar. Chrome yellow, scarlet late, lead white. Canvases. You put them downstairs for me. Two six befores, three four befrees. McGill. Next week. He can't quite seem to square the circle of relating to the people around him, whether they love or hate his work. In his behavior, in his relationship with the world, he is an ugly man. But as the film continues with the passage of time, we see him gain some comfort and humanity in the world as well. A true human relationship blooms. The art, of course, doesn't justify the monstrous behavior, but we come to see Turner in a plain light, as a man with great flaws who also made great art. There's a scene in the film where he looks through a peephole into his own salon, spying on potential customers. In the movie, in Mr. Turner, we're given a peephole ourselves, a tiny lens that looks out at how art is made. That's my outshot.
That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye recorded at MaximumFun.org headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where our stalwart producer Kevin spotted an ill pelican, a listless pelican in our lake, which is probably a dozen miles inland from the sea, which is where pelicans live. And he called and got it rescued. It's doing fine now. They wrapped it up in a sheet and took it to a rehab at an international bird rescue in San Pedro. So congratulations to that pelican and to Kevin, our producer. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin, the Bird Saver Ferguson, with help from Casey O'Brien, our production fellows at MaximumFun.org, our Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's a song by the Go Team. They and their label Memphis Industries Records provided it to us. Our thanks go to them. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We share all of our interviews there, plus uh, stuff that we think is interesting that's going on in the world of popular culture. And once in a while, maybe we share a press release headline that has caught our eyes, like the one we just got in our email inboxes that says, The Manhattan Transfer Named Honorary Life Members of the Barbershop Harmony Society. A tip of the cap to them. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.